Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. Now, of course, we gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both in person and online. In person, we have Kids Church. We pray together. We worship together through song. We uh, have community together. Sometimes we have donuts together, and we study God's Word together. Online, of course, we are uh, studying the same parts of the Bible as we are in person. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew. And then throughout the week, we meet in small groups. Uh, We have small groups that meet in people's homes. We have small groups that are online. We have a small group on Sunday morning before church. And uh, all of our online content is available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify for the audio versions. Video versions are available on Facebook and on our website, uh, faithonhill.com, for Sunday mornings. There's a live-streamed version. And then uh, if you are with us on Facebook, if you could hit like or maybe hit the share button. If you're on Apple or Spotify, hit like or, or subscribe. Uh, you can email us, uh, office at Faith on Hill or Adam at Faith on Hill. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we know there are some folks that uh, are online only, and we'd love to just kind of be connected with you. Uh, we do have an online only small group, and so uh, that's a great opportunity to be connected more with people at Faith on Hill. And we are looking to start a new small group that's not weekly, but is more like every other week or maybe once a month. And you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. All right, so we are going to continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. So you can open your Bible to Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to finish chapter 21 this morning. So we're finishing Matthew chapter 21 this morning, and Jesus has come back into Jerusalem. The first day of Holy Week, he entered Jerusalem as the Messiah, declaring himself Messiah. And the first thing he did was he went into the temple and he cleared it out. He cleansed it. He drove out all of the corruption, the money changers, and he opened it up and created a space, a space for prayer, a space for those who are um, the outcast, the outsider, those who hadn't found a place in the place that they should have found a place. And Jesus made all of that open for them. And then that night he left Jerusalem and he stayed outside in the town of Bethany and then he came back into Jerusalem. And that morning he went back into the temple and he began to teach the people and minister to the people. And the chief priests and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to him and they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? They're basically saying, Who gave you the right? Where do you get off? What what makes you think that you can come in here and mess with our temple and our status quo and mess things up because we liked how things were? And Jesus said in verse 24, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer me, then I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And he says, John's baptism, referencing back, to John the Baptist. Three years earlier, John the Baptist had gone out into the wilderness near the Jordan River, and he had proclaimed a a message of repentance. Turn away from your sins because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he had baptized people in the Jordan River as a sign that they were turning away from their sins. And he said, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from human origin? And They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? Because they didn't. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, they by and large had not embraced 
John's baptism. In general, none of them had gone and repented of their sins. None of them had gone and been baptized. None of them had made themselves right to prepare for the kingdom of heaven. They had, in their silence, in their inaction, rejected his message. So they said, hey, if we say from heaven, then he'll ask us, why didn't you believe him? And it's a fair question. But if we say, oh, it was just of human origin, uh, that's going to get us in trouble too because all of the people believe that John was a prophet because for over 400 years, Israel had not had a prophet like they had had in the days of old. You know, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and, and prophets like, you know, Daniel and Amos and uh, all of the prophets in the, in the way, way back, you know, the, the judges, you know, uh, Samson and Gideon and uh, Samuel and Nathan, these, these prophets of renown in their history. And they had not had a prophet for 400 years since the prophet Malachi. And now John the Baptist comes on the scene and he has everything you're looking for in a prophet, John the Baptist has. And so they say, hey, if we just say he's of human origin, which would make sense why they had rejected his message, but the people will turn against us because they all believed in him as a prophet. So they said, we don't know. They gave the political non-answer. So Jesus said, well, then neither am I going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then he said, but hey, what do you think about this? There's a man. And he has two sons. And he goes to the first son and he says, hey, I want you to go out and work in the vineyard today. And the son says, I will not. But later on, he changes his mind and he goes out and he works in the vineyard. And then he goes to the second son and he says the same thing. Hey, I want you to go out and work in the vineyard today. Which makes total sense, by the way. This is the family business. This is how the family not just like earns a living, but like literally survives, literally feeds itself. Son, I want you to go out and help. Do your, not just your chores, but literally help us live, help us survive. Son, I want you to go out and do your work. And the son says, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two sons did what the father wanted? Well, they answered, hey, it was the first son. Even though he had said, I will not do this. It was the first son who did it because he eventually did go into the field. Even though he had said, I'm not doing that. He went and did it anyway. The second son made a big show. Absolutely. You got it. I'm going to do it. But he didn't do it. And Jesus said to them, hey, I'm going to tell you this. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So these questions of authority that they're asking Jesus, by what authority do you do, you do all these things? What gives you the right? There's really three answers, right? Some of them would have believed either one of these three answers or a mixture of the three answers. Some of them probably thought that John really was working on some kind of divine inspiration. You know, we don't really know what's going on with John the Baptist, but he does seem to be working at a higher level than we are. And maybe that freaked him out. You know, it can make religious people extremely uncomfortable when God works through someone else. 
really uncomfortable. Why is it that God is working through John the Baptist and not through me? Doesn't God know all of the training that I have done, all of the hours I have spent memorizing the scripture, all of the time I have spent learning doctrine and history and theology? If, if they were in our times, we might say all of the time I have spent in seminary and getting my masters of divinity and becoming uh, ordained and, or, or uh, you know, learning all of these things. I, I went to this class and I went to that class and I was confirmed and I did this and I've been a church member and I've, I've done all of these steps to become a spiritual person. And then God seems to be using that person and they've never been a member of the church in their life. And, and they've never been to seminary, let alone Bible college. And, and they, they seem to read their Bible, but they've never read any sort of book of theology or, or church history. They just seem to read their Bible. What's going on? It really bothers them. There's probably another school of thought among them. There were those who just thought, no, he is just a fraud. He's just a charismatic person, but it's all human charisma. The people are desperate. The people are looking for anything and here's this guy who comes along and he dresses like they think a prophet should dress and he goes out there and says exciting things and, and crazy things and they just buy into it because they don't know any better. And certainly there would have been some that thought that, genuinely thought that. And still there were probably a third group, those who were tragically too cynical to care. This is a scary group to be in. The people who are too cynical to care. Is John the Baptist from heaven or is he a human fraud? Doesn't matter. They're so cynical, they're so jaded that they don't even care. One of my, one of my favorite lines, I love you too. I love the band, you too. There's a, there's a, I don't know if it's from The Onion or uh, from Babylon Bee. I don't know which satirical website it's from, but there's a, a meme that's going around. It has been for the last several months that says something like, study find that no one actually likes you too, but nobody will admit it. And I totally reject that. You too is one of my favorite bands. And they have a great line in one of their songs that says, you can't be numb from love. The only pain is to feel nothing at all. And what that means is, is that love makes you feel. You either feel joy or pain. Numbness is the absence of love. Cynicism is the absence of, of love. Skepticism is totally valid. I think it's good and healthy at times to be skeptical. Cynicism, though, is when I am so jaded, so, so absent of hope, so absent of, of, of any sort of like chance of, of hope or feeling or love that I just don't even care. I'm just numb. And, and I'm sure there was a third group that is just too cynical to care. They can't even be bothered to figure out if John is legit or not. But all three of these groups, whether they believed John was real, whether they believed John was a fraud, whether they're too cynical to care, all of them rejected John the Baptist, and now they are rejecting Jesus for the same reason, because it is a threat to their personal position, their personal power, their personal status quo. They're all rejecting for the same reason. The reason that they come to Jesus and they say, what gives you the right 
to do all of this is the same reason that any person in our day hears the message of Jesus and says, what gives you the right to challenge my status quo, to status, challenge my belief system, to challenge my way of thinking? Because it's a threat to our personal power, our personal authority. And you, don't, you might think, oh, that's, that's so true. You know, I know so many worldly people, so-called heathens, who that's so true for. These aren't worldly people. These aren't quote-unquote heathens. These are incredibly religious people. We might say they were spiritual people. They, they definitely are people who were trying to be religious. Some of the most religious people I know are the people who have the biggest barriers to the message of Jesus because it challenges their personal preferences and their personal works. And then Jesus tells them this story and says, what do you think about this story? There are these two sons. The religious leaders are the audience of this story because he says it to them. Hey, what do you think about this? He says, I'm not going to answer your question because you won't answer mine, but hey, what do you think about this? And he tells them the story about the two sons. The one son says, I won't go, but then goes. The one son makes a big show. Yes, I'll go do whatever you want, Father, and then doesn't do it. And there's the religious talker, and then there's the repentant. The religious person talks a lot. The repentant person acts. And what Jesus is saying to them is, you guys have talked a big show about religion. You guys have talked a big show about spirituality. You guys have talked a big show about righteousness or holiness. But here is the tax collector and the prostitute. And you don't get, in their society, these are the two big sinners the tax collector and the prostitute. And he says, they are walking and entering into the kingdom of heaven. They are walking into the way of righteousness that John the Baptist showed them, and you have rejected it. I guarantee the Pharisees, the rabbis, the chief priests, the teachers of the law did not like that story at all because it was hitting too close to home. And then Jesus says in verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it and he dug a wine press in it and he built a watchtower and he rented the vineyard to some farmers and he moved to another place. So he's saying, hey, there's a landowner and he did all the work. He set them all up. He planted the vineyard. He put up the, all the protections, all of the infrastructure. Everything is set up. All, of, all that these farmers that he rented to would have to do would be to harvest the grapes when the time comes due. Everything else is set up. It's just like sit back and watch the grapes grow. Everything else is set for you. That you're, you are, you're good to go. You have it as easy as anyone could. And when the harvest time came, he sent his servants to the tenant to collect his fruit. The tenant seized his servants and they beat one. They killed another. And they stoned a third. And we sent his other servants to them, more than the first, and the tenants treated them the same way. And last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and then we'll take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. 
who will give him his share of the crops of the harvest time. So Jesus tells this story. Hey, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, set it all up, got the irrigation going, got the wine press ready, built a wall around it so nobody could sneak in and steal stuff, put a watchtower in place so things could be set and looked over. Uh, Everything is ready to go. Everything can be watched over. Everything is, is easy street for whoever is now farming this land. And when the owner comes just for his share, he's not even going to take all the grapes. I just want my share of the crop. What's rightfully mine? It's my land. I did all of this work. You're just harvesting it, and I just want my share of the crop. The first servant was beaten. They killed another servant. They stoned another servant. This is speaking of the tenants are the people of Israel. God gave them the land of Israel, and he set them up. It was a good land. It was a land that provided everything they needed, and he set them up. I'm going to put you in a place. I will provide it for you. I will be your defender. You will have everything that you need. And then what happened when God said, I just want what's rightfully mine, what you agreed to, when we, when we made our agreements, our covenants, if you've been with us, uh, we have these podcasts, you know, and we, we have the 20-minute the Bible study. We did the book of Exodus. The people agreed to these covenants. God said, I will be your God. You will be my people. If you keep my commands and my covenants, then I will protect you. I will be your defender. I will provide for you. You will not experience famine. You will not experience drought. What did the people do? They did not do those things. They did not keep God's commands or his covenants. And in the 20-minute Bible study, we've been in the book of 1 Samuel. Oh, that's exactly what's been going on. In the Starting Points podcast, we're starting to go through those historical books and see that's exactly what was going on, that God's people did not keep his commands. And these servants that God is talking about are the prophets that God sent And he sent his prophets to speak to his people, to call his people back to him. And often we think of the prophets as these kind of great men of the Bible, great women of the Bible who had great respect, and some did. Deborah, the prophet, who not only like spoke God's word to the people, but she was also a judge, like a judicial figure in the lives of the people. And she was a leader of the people, and she had the great respect of the people of Israel. And some had that, but then there were others who did not. Jeremiah was thrown in prison. Tradition and history says that the prophet Isaiah was killed for his ministry. Other prophets were mistreated. Elijah and Elisha both at different points had to go on the run and hide and flee. When uh, Stephen, who was one of the uh, men who were part of the original Christians, the first church in Jerusalem. And he was brought before the ruling council in Jerusalem. And he was recounting the history of the people of Israel. And he says, which one of the prophets did our fathers not kill? He's saying, we're so proud of our history. We're the children of Abraham, we say. We're, we're the descendants of Moses, we say. We have the law and the prophets, we say. But he affirms what Jesus said, that the servants of the master were sent And we rejected them. We we mistreated them. We wouldn't listen to them. And finally, he says, the son was sent. And they killed him. 
just as Jesus would soon be killed at the hands of sinful man. And Jesus says, what, what, what should be done? And they, they pronounce their own judgment on themselves. This actually mirrors something that happens in the book of 2 Samuel when King David sins and, and the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him a story and it's basically describing King David's sin. And he says, what should happen to the man who does this evil thing? And David says, oh, you know, God should just totally come down on him and judge him and kill him. And Nathan says, that's you. You're the man. And Jesus is letting them pronounce their own judgment on themselves. They say the, the master will come and will bring judgment and take, their, take the vineyard from them and give them to someone who else who will honor the agreements. And Jesus says, have you never read the scripture, verse 24? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus here is quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. You can go read that on your own time. But as we understand it from tradition and history, what's going on there is that when they were building the temple, when they were building the temple, Solomon's temple, that a stone was sent and the builders received the stone from the quarry and they couldn't figure out where it went and it's like, it doesn't fit anywhere. And so they pushed it away. And, and so when they were, were trying to finish things, there's like one stone missing, the final stone to put in place to get everything ready. And they said, where's the stone? And they sent word to the quarry, where is it? You haven't sent it. And they said, no, we sent that a long time ago. And they found it had been pushed aside and actually it had been so long that bushes had started to grow over it. So they had to like clear it off and clean it off and they had to put it in. And, and they actually wrote a song about how the, this thing had been rejected, but it was actually this, this beautiful stone that had been carved and cut perfectly. And it was a celebratory song at the completion of the temple. And Jesus said, you have rejected the stone but it is the cornerstone, the finishing stone of the work of God. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom the stone falls, it will be crushed. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew that he was talking about them, and they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds because the people held that he was a prophet. What will we do with what we have been given? It's easy for us to just go, oh man, those guys messed up. Those chief priests, those Pharisees, those religious leaders, man, they were, they missed the boat on that one. But what about us? It's easy to point the finger and blame them. It's easy to say, oh boy, you guys messed up. But what about us? I think there are two modern, current applications that we could take, and here they are. First is the reality that there are many people who are religious, spiritual, outwardly holy people. Even in our day, even as religion declines in America, there are quote-unquote good church-going people in America who are totally false. They are the people who have, they're in the vineyard, so to speak, but they will not give the master his share. They reject the master's servants who speak to them, whether it be uh, a Christian uh, neighbor, a spouse, a friend, a pastor, a podcast, whatever it is, they reject the word of the Lord to them. 
however God is speaking to them. There are people who outwardly look good, who make the big show like the second son, who say, yes, I'll go do your work, and then will not do it. And then there are people who, you know, you'd look at them and go, what's going on there? There's not much happening. And we don't see that God's bringing them into the kingdom. And there's all kinds of problems, and there's warts and and scars and flaws, and there's all kinds of mess, and yet God's bringing them into the kingdom. And, And the world outside might go label them tax collector, prostitute. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. They're entering the kingdom of heaven. They're starting to walk on the way of righteousness. And you're seeing things totally backwards because all you can see is from your false perspective. So that's application one. Application two is this. America has a history of boom and bust cycles in just about everything. Our economy, boom and bust. Right now it kind of feels like we're about to bust again. Uh, You know, in terms of like national success, boom and bust. Uh, in, in terms of, of just like peace among people, boom and bust. Uh, you know, right now it feels like we're in a time like the, you know, the 60s and 70s where there's just strife among people. And, and we had that in the 20s and the 30s. If you, if you know the history of America, you know, the 20s, actually there was a lot of strife between people in America in the 20s and the 30s before the war kind of brought us together. And then there was a lot of strife in the 60s and the 70s. And then, you know, things kind of got chilled out. And then, you know, we kind of came together, certainly came together after 9-11, and then now we're kind of at strife with each other again. There's also a boom and bust cycle historically when it comes to spirituality in America. And you can go back. Uh, if you go and check out the uh, Talk About Anything podcast that we did with our new conference superintendent, uh, Pastor Brian Hotram, and he was talking about how he has, because uh, he's a historian, he has documentation about before the first, second great awakening, there were people who, who were writing and saying, you know, that's it. Christianity in America is done. There, there's no hope. You know, the church might as well just shut down. Or we're just, it's not going to be the same anymore. And yet there has been revival after revival. There was the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the third great awakening. There, there were people like Moody. There was, you know, George Whitfield. There was the Azusa Street revival, which people are still uncomfortable with. Even to this day, they are uncomfortable with that one. There was the Jesus People Revival, which uh, there's a movie about to come out called Jesus Revolution uh, that talks a bit about that revival. That happened in the 70s. There are these cycles of boom and bust in terms of American spirituality. And historically speaking, it's not unlikely, historically speaking, that we are in a bust cycle, but that a boom spiritually could come at any time. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's 10 years from now. Who knows? But here's the question. If and or when the next revival happens, what will our response to it be? Because historically, whenever a revival comes, whenever a new work of God comes, the established church says, who gives you the right What gives you the authority? And you can go back throughout the history of revivals in the church, and this has always been the case. Martin Luther came along and and, and others like him during the Reformation, and it was that who gives you the right? What gives you the authority? John Wesley came along. 
who gives you the right? What gives you the authority? Uh, Moody came along and everybody's like, what are you doing? Even Billy Graham, like we think of Billy Graham as this like really respectable guy, really establishment kind of figure. Until you realize that like in the 50s, Billy Graham was actually not that respected. He was young. So there were a lot of older Christians that saw, oh, here's this young guy, like what's he doing? Uh, He wasn't like super accredited with degrees and, you know, he didn't have all these like doctorates and PhDs. And so there were all these people that said like, who's this guy? He used to be a shoe salesman. You know, what's his deal? Uh, There's all these things where, actually, I remember reading a book in in college and uh, the book was from the 50s and and the guy was just going off about somebody. And I was halfway through the book when I realized that this guy was ripping on Billy Graham. And I was like, whoa. And And the reason is because it doesn't fit what we think of as church or the work of God because it doesn't fit our personal preferences or, or our, our thoughts or traditions about what God's work looks like. Even, you know, I said Azusa is this one, like if you go back and read the history of the Azusa Street Revival, which started in L.A. like in the early 1900s, that's one that like people are still so uncomfortable with that they like want to explain away even to this day. Usually, a hundred years later, we can kind of go, oh, you know, that happened. And we kind of, time gives us a certain amount of comfort. Azusa was so radical that we're still incredibly uncomfortable with it. What's interesting to me is when I read the history of our denomination, there's a passage in it where one of the founding fathers of our denomination described in the late 60s what he thought the next revival would look like. And ironically, he was describing this at the time when when that revival was starting in places like Texas and in the middle of Manhattan and in Southern California as the Jesus People Revival was starting. And what he was describing, what he thought the next revival would look like, was nothing like it. And our group of churches really did not connect with the Jesus People Revival. And this is something I think about all the time. What would happen if God started to move and pour out his spirit and, and kids on the campus of Rex Putnam, Milwaukee High School, started to give their lives to Jesus, but it looked so different than anything we were used to, what would our response be? Would we get on board with what Jesus was doing? Or would we stand there and say, this doesn't fit what we're comfortable with? This doesn't fit what we've known? This doesn't fit our way of doing things, our status quo, what would we do? It's a question that I ask myself often because it's highly possible. Maybe not today. Maybe it's in three years. Maybe it's in five years. But it's highly possible that we will have to make a decision at some point. Do we get on board with the next thing God does as he begins to pour out his spirit in a new way? Or do we dig our heels in and say, say, nope, we're going to wait until God decides to do things the way we like them. And that's not going to happen. I guarantee it. Now, that was a word to Christians. I always want to end with a word to a non-believer because I know that there are non-believers who listen. And here's this final message I have for you. Jesus was speaking these words to religious people because he's trying to shake them up. He cares about them. But the reason that Jesus came The reason that Jesus was there, the reason that Jesus was doing all of these things was for you and for me, the sinner. That Jesus Christ came to this world of mess and brokenness and pain and hurt because our sins are real. 
because my sin is real and because he could save us. And when he died on the cross, the Bible says that God the Father said that is an acceptable sacrifice to pay the price, the justice, the judgment that my sin and your sin deserved. And that all of us, all of us have sinned and we deserve judgment for that sin, but Jesus sets us free from sin and death. And through his death on the cross, we are set free, we are forgiven, we are made new. We have a brand new start. And you may think, you know what? I don't know about any of this other stuff, but, but you know, I get religious people would probably think I'm a prostitute or a tax collector. Well, Jesus says, come on in. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Walk in the ways of true righteousness. Learn what that means. And I believe if you call out to him, he will meet you where you are at. And if you call out to him and you want to know more about what that means, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. I'd love to connect with you. Jesus is real. Jesus is working. Jesus changes lives. We just need to reach out and he will grab hold of us wherever we are. I believe that firmly. And may the peace of God be full in your lives this week, wherever you're at. Oh, my.